Turn with me, if you will, please, to Luke's Gospel, chapter 9, as we continue our journey through the New Testament here. Chapter 9, verse 18 through 26 this morning. To you, Jesus is. And your answer is? You have to answer that question in your heart. You will answer that question one day if you haven't already. And I hope you've decided and that you know who Jesus really is. And is Jesus Christ someone worth following? And if he is indeed worthy to be followed, how much effort and how important it is that we make ourselves his disciples? These are the questions that are, will be our Ask, actually, and contemplated in our text this morning. Earlier in the chapter, in verse 9, Herod uh, was asking the same question, really. Who is this guy? Is this, in his perplexity and his consternation, he couldn't figure out who Jesus was. He couldn't figure out the identity of the Messiah. You know, those who were around him would say, well, you know, it could be John the Baptist back from the dead. Or, well, you know, it's just probably one of those old prophets that have risen again. But it might be Elijah, because he's supposed to come before the Messiah comes. So he was perplexed, consternated. There's a lot of people today. They have heard the name Jesus Christ. They swear the name of Jesus Christ, but they have no idea who Jesus Christ really is. He's more than a man, and this is what we'll discover here, and this is what the scriptures teach us. In his earthly ministry, he uh, provoked a lot of controversy. He was so different than the religious establishment. You know, it says of him that when Jesus spoke, he spoke with such authority that the people, it's like they were mouth gaped. You know, like, oh my goodness, has anybody ever spoken like this before? Where did he get these things, you know? And they were impressed by his words as he uttered things that had been kept secret since the foundation of the world. And he was there to teach and instruct the people. When he was dead tired... And the disciples were seeking to go to a deserted place to just get alone and rest. It says when he saw the crowds, he was moved with compassion. And he taught them. The people of God do not need to be preached at. They need to be instructed. That's why we have pastors and teachers. Now, preachers should preach and proclaim the good news. But we should focus mostly on teaching and instructing the saints on how to live. Come to know God and have a deep interpersonal relationship with the Lord. Part of this controversy was because of the religious establishment and their intimidation of the people through the law of Moses and the tradition of the elders. You need to be like us. Wash your hands before you eat. And if you don't do that, you're unclean. And you're rejected by God and all such things that they would do. And Jesus, it seems to be, broke every tradition of the elders that he came across just because they were living life. 
enjoying what God had provided for them. And yet, Jesus in these last few chapters, as Luke has laid it out for us here, demonstrating his lordship over nature, calming the wind and the waves, healing the sick, raising the dead, just one miracle after another to fulfill scripture that had been predicted what Messiah would do. He's trying to communicate his identity through his works. He did a good job of it. And so at the end of this section, Luke has sort of organized his material in that way. And Jesus, as we pick this up here in verse 18, is asking this all-important question that all mankind, including us, will one day answer. And for most of us, probably in this room, we've answered it. But there may be some that haven't. And you need to answer this question in, the, in a good way. Verse 18 reads, And it happened as he was alone praying that his disciples joined him. And he asked them, saying, Who do the crowds say that I am? And so they answered and said, John the Baptist, some say Elijah, and others say one of the prophets, old prophets, and has risen again. That's a reference to Jeremiah in Matthew's gospel. But he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered and said, The Christ of God, the Messiah. Who do men say that I am? Who is Jesus? Who is this guy, right? How do we know for sure that Jesus is the Son of God? Well, as I alluded to earlier, prophecy revealed what Messiah would be like, the things he would do. And this is, was his answer to the establishment in John's Gospel. You know, you, you believe me, not because I say so much, but for the work's sake, they are they that testify of me. He was always pointing to his works to solidify his person. His words, I am... Oh, meek and lowly. He referred to himself as the son of man. We're going to get into that a little bit here. I think that's important for us to understand. The son of man, you know, we take it in Luke's Gospels that he's referring to his humanity. In reality, he's not. In reality, that is a more powerful statement that he is deity than to say that he's the son of God. Adam tells us in the lineage, if you read it carefully, that Adam was the son of God. For, so for Jesus to say that he's the son of man, we thought, well, he's identifying with humanity. Ah, much greater than that. This is important. Some of you are aware of this scripture. Turn with me to Daniel. Daniel 7. I'd like to hear those pages turn. Now, some of you don't have a Bible anymore. You use your electronic device. You know what? And that's quite all right. It just doesn't make any noise. <laughs> Daniel 9, or 7, excuse me, we'll pick it up in verse 9. I watched until the thrones were put in place. This is a prophetic utterance delivered to Daniel from the angel. And the Ancient of Days was seated, that would be the Father, we would assume, his garment was white as snow. Where have we heard that description? His hair on his head was like pure wool. And his throne was a fiery flame. And his wheels a burning fire. Revelation 1 come to mind. A 
A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. Thousands of thousands ministered to him. Ten thousands times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated and the books were opened. Now that's a lot of people in heaven. How do you get them all in there? That's what I want to know. Wow, it's interesting. Verse 11, I watched then because of the sound of the pompous words which the horn was speaking. And I watched until the beast was slain, its body destroyed, and given to the burning flame. As for the rest of the beast, they had their dominion taken away, and their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. And I was watching, in verse 13, in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. And he came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him, and then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people's nations' languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, the one that shall not be destroyed. So we see this son of man is equivalent to deity. We see the two Yahwehs here in the Old Testament, which is sort of like, wait, Two Yahwehs? No, well, we have the Trinity in the Old Testament, just like we have the Trinity in the New Testament, right? You just got to pick up on it. The angel of the Lord, Exodus 23, for those of you taking notes. Um, we have Judges chapter 2, uh, verses 1, the angel of the Lord coming through the camp. This was a physical appearance, by the way. It wasn't some mist, mist floating through, not to be crude, but just to show you how real of what I'm talking about it is. Moses instructed the Israelites, look, when you go outside and you happen to have to go to the bathroom, make sure you take a shovel with you or some digging utensil, and when you go to the restroom, cover what comes from you. Because the Lord, the angel of the Lord, walks through your camp. So this isn't some you know, story. This is a reality that the angel of the Lord was with them. Yahweh was with them in a physical form. From time to time, he would walk through their camp. Of course, he showed up above the tabernacle and the Shekinah and the glory was there. And so we have this two personages very evident in the Old Testament. It's important to understand that because when Jesus is standing before Caiaphas and he's being, after his arrest, and he's being tried by that phony court and he's on trial, what does he refer to? From now on, you will see the Son of Man standing at the right hand. He says, I might be on trial right now, but sir, you are going to be on trial in the near future. You're the one that's really on trial here. And he ripped his clothes because he's, him being a man claimed himself to be God. So it's important that you understand who Jesus really is. Because if you don't believe that Jesus is who he claimed to be and who the prophetic scriptures told us that he was, you'll die in your sin. This was the big thing that he laid upon the establishment. Unless you believe that I am, and he's referring to Exodus 3, the identity of Yahweh, the great I am. Unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sin. There's no forgiveness apart from Jesus Christ. I think it's important to understand a couple truths here. As I've been indicating, the importance of who God is who Jesus Christ is. If you worship the wrong God, there's no salvation. You must worship the right God. 
But in order to really worship the God, right God, Jesus Christ, and the Father in heaven, and the spirit that he's given to us, you must understand who we are before him. I'm going to read a few things here. Because you have to understand the truth about God, but you also have to understand the truth about mankind in general. We have to understand the state of humanity. And our fallen state is not a pleasant one. But we all fit in this category. We must be willing to humble ourselves and admit this. That's the truth. If we're to receive the salvation that he so graciously offers us. Think about the sin that happens in one day. Some of this we can reflect upon in our own lives. Our selfish reactions, critical judgments, pride, self-righteousness, vain imaginations, impure thoughts, foolish words, prayerlessness, quick, unthought responses, self-idolization, spiritual adultery, Dead in our sin and in our trespasses. No life bound for eternal damnation. Hopeless, helpless, alienated, and separated from God. Wicked, unholy, and ignorant of God. That is the state of humanity. That is our state before we come to know the gracious offer of salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ. It's because of his blood, his willingness to come and incarnate, become a man and die in our place. All the sin that's ever been committed was put upon him. His blood provides forgiveness, redemption, Eternal salvation, grace, mercy, peace, all this when he gave his life for us. Think about it for a moment. Jesus Christ became what I am so that I could become what he is before God, righteous. It's the greatest exchange. You know... I like to use this phrase on occasion. He took the nails, right? He had three of them. He took the nails, boom, boom, and then the feet. Well, if he was such a God of love, why would he let this evil go on? Well, if he immediately eradicated evil, so would we be gone. He let man choose, as he lets all free moral agents choose. And he's letting this play out, and he's letting humanity make their choice. Will we choose to believe who he says he is? Will we identify Jesus Christ as God come in the flesh? Who do you say that Jesus is? See, he didn't really care what the crowds thought. What do you say? Who do you say I am? That's what matters. Who do you say this morning that Jesus is? That's what matters. Not what the pastor says. It's what Jesus says about himself. See, to know the truth is what? To be set free. 
That's the way of freedom. Just facing the truth of who we are. No, no need to keep up pretenses anymore. We're far from perfect. God understands that. He's made provisions for that. So it's the truth, right? The truth about God and the truth about ourselves. That's how we make progress in our relationship with God. The minute we start lying about ourselves or worship ourselves or get involved with all that of self, we sort of lose touch. We don't hear God. We don't understand God. We're confused. But when we break and yield and humble ourselves, then he's there. He's drawn to weakness. He's drawn to those who humble themselves as children because he loves us and he wants us, him to be part of our lives in a deep way. But you need a filter for the truth. Do you think you find truth out here in the world? Where is truth? I mean, this is a big question to Pilate, right? For the truth's sake. What is truth? The one that was standing right in front of you is the truth. As Jesus indicated, I am the truth. I am the life. I am the way. How do you arrive at your conclusions about life? Oh, well, it's... I just kind of figured it out on my own. You know, I got a brain and I just kind of work through the issues and whatever I decide, well, then it makes you God. You're worshiping yourself. You're trusting yourself. A lot of people think that. They also think that as soon as they breathe their last and they collapse in death, and that's, they cease to exist. And they're going to be greatly disappointed when that happens. Because that is not a true. That is a lie. That's what Satan would have them to believe. We are eternal beings. This flesh is just my vehicle, my mode of operation in this realm. But when I leave this realm, it is now my spirit and soul that awry will come before God. That my spirit is my vehicle, if you will, in my communication with my Heavenly Father. He speaks to us and ministers to us through His Spirit, to our spirit. But we have to have a basis of judgment, and it is the Word of God. So you must know the Word of God. This is truth. There is no other truth. There's only this truth. There's not your truth and my truth. It's the truth. And it's objective and it's here. It's not subjective. It's objective. There is a right. There is a wrong. There's a black. There's a white. There is absolutes. Our culture's counter to that, is it not? It's whatever you want it to be. No, it's not. But you must know the word. You must read the word. Otherwise, you will not know the truth. You'll not have a good filter your worldview will be skewed and shaped by the world itself. A world that has been separated from God by sin. But you can make a choice about Jesus because it's through him that you know the truth. You're going to take the opinions of men, which is what a lot of people do. Most people, when they talk about the Bible or Jesus, they're not really talking about what they've personally thought about. They're just parroting what they've heard from other people Oh, the Bible's full of contradictions. The Bible this and the Bible that. Well, have you ever read it? You want, would you like to show me where that is, sir? They can't show you. They can't tell you. They're just parroting. Oh, he's just a preacher like John the Baptist. Well, he's just a miracle worker, you know, like Elijah and Elisha. Or he's just compassion. He's a compassionate guy like Jeremiah was. You see, are you going to go with the opinions of men or are you going to go by what the Word itself reveals? We've read it. 
the prophetic utterance of Daniel. He is the Son of Man who is going to receive an eternal kingdom. And you and I can be part of that by making the right choice and the right assessment of who he is. So what's Jesus really looking for? He's looking for a personal confession from each and every one of us, isn't he? Who do you say that I am? Answer that in your own heart. Peter was quick, quick Peter. You're the Messiah, no doubt. You know, I love this guy, man. Can I walk on the water with you? Yeah, well, come on on, okay. I mean, this guy's eager, zealous for the Lord. I love it. It's a great example to us. But even that revelation wasn't something he came up with. The Bible tells us that the Father in heaven through the Spirit revealed that to him. You see, you really can't figure it out. We're all like Herod, trying to figure it out. But when we humbly seek God, his Spirit comes and reveals who Jesus really is to us. It's through the Holy Spirit that we come to understand who God really is. That's something we have to kind of work up intellectually. This is, God doesn't reach us intellectually. He reaches us spiritually through our spirit. It affects our minds. It affects our thinking. But primarily it's through the spirit. There are those who believe that as long as they have the true facts about Jesus, then they're going to be saved. I know that he was born of the Virgin Mary. I know that he was born in Bethlehem and he lived in Nazareth. And I know that he had disciples and he worked miracles and he died on the cross. I know Jesus died on the cross. Those are intellectual facts. A lot of people have a lot of information about Jesus. There's even a lot of people that have a lot of information about the Bible. That doesn't save you. What is it that saves us? It is faith in what God has said, and faith is an action word, that if I really believe that, I'm going to respond to it, and it's going to bring me into submission and obedience to him. That's important to understand. Because you, the saddest words that any person will ever hear when they stand before the judgment seat of God, and he says, depart from me, I never knew you. See, it's not about what you know, it's who you know. I know the Lord Jesus Christ. I have learned Jesus Christ. To know God is to learn him and to follow him, as we will see here. Jesus is God. Jesus is the creator of the universe. Now, do you understand the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the Trinity? And it's complete. Little kids might. (laughs) I sure don't. It's hard to grasp what the Bible describes. How can three be one? But they are. I don't know. But they are. When he took those nails and he cried out his last words were, it is finished. To tetelestai. To fully accomplish. To bring it to the end. The debt of sinful mankind. That debt was paid in full. And the shadows and the type of the Old Testament have been fulfilled. It is finished. What happened when he gave up the Spirit? Do you remember? The veil in the temple ripped top to bottom, 20 feet tall, 8 inches thick. Now the way into the holy place is now available. 
forbidden by the high priest only once a year to come into the Holy of Holies after the, in the Day of Atonement. Ripped wide open. What is he saying? The debt of all mankind has been paid. Come on in. But you can only come through the blood. You can only come because you believe and you trust in the sacrifice and the atonement that was made for your sin. It's a personal thing. Access to God has been granted. What a privilege we have been given. He took on the guilt. His perfect blood provides that atonement for our sin. One life, one sacrifice for all time. I don't have to cr crawl on broken glass for miles on end to receive forgiveness. It's just simply ask for it. And you know when you ask for it, you know how quick God is to forgive? Instantaneous. That's all he's looking for. Jesus, forgive me. Can you remember when you had that encounter with God and you said, Jesus, please forgive me. It's right there, isn't it? Right there. I'll never forget sitting on the couch in my living room at 18 years of age. Jesus, please forgive me. Never change my life forever. He is the anointed one. He is the son of the living God. He is deity. Who do you say that Jesus Christ is? In Matthew eleven twenty five, it says that at that time, Jesus answered and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the prudent and have revealed them to babes, even so, Father, for it seemed good in your sight. All things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father. Nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, the one in whom the Son wills to reveal him. Do you want to know God? Do you want to know truth? It's because Jesus is willing to reveal himself and the Father to us. Isn't that wonderful? He longs to reveal himself. And that's the basis of salvation, knowing who God is. But revelation is another thing. In John 16, 12, in 13, Jesus said this to his disciples in his last meeting with them there in the upper room. I have, still have many things that I want to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. However, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak of his own authority, but he, whatever he speaks, hears, he will speak. And he will tell you things to come. So, Generally, the Lord reveals his mind to us gradually. He lets the light in as we're able to bear it. But we must be, be prepared and be ready and fit to receive it. And once the truth is understood in our hearts, then the Lord will bring more to us we are, as we are able to bear it. Not all spiritual truths are learned at the same time. It's not like you can download that file, right? It doesn't work that way. It's just walking with the Lord day by day, month by month, year by year.
keeping your hand to the plow, not looking back, and just trusting him. And as you do that, the more you know, we'll learn, and the more you'll come to know. It is the Holy Spirit that is faithful to give us what we need when we need it. Next thing we need to look at in verses 21 through 22 is the suffering, death, and resurrection. So we have the who. Who is Jesus? We've established his deity quite well, I assume. You would agree with that. But now we need to see his purpose in coming, which I've already alluded to as well. And this is where it would take place. As we read in Matthew's gospel, he said, uh, we're going to go up to Jerusalem. Now, if you understand where we're at in, in, in Luke's gospel here, you, you can't really, he just has kind of organized the material. I mean, he leaves out the part where he rebukes Peter upon learning uh, Jesus going to the cross. I'm like, no, 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 you can't do that. We've got to establish the kingdom. And Jesus rebuked him, right? That's omitted here, but it's in Mark's gospel and it's in Matthew's gospel. So if you put all this together in the Synoptic Gospels, you'll understand that they are headed north from Israel towards Mount Hermon, Caesarea Philippi, and they're there near the base when all this sort of takes place that we've uh, read here this morning. And then he's saying to him, look, we're going up to Jerusalem, it's getting near Passover, and this is what's going to happen. He strictly warned them and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, the scribes, be killed and raised on the third day. Now we know who the elders are. There would be the members of the Sanhedrin, the more liberal group of the uh, groups there at that time. And then we have the chief priests, who would be the, the uh, teachers of the law. And then we had the scribes, as he's mentioned here. Those are the experts, the scholars, if you will. Uh, these is the, are the ones that are going to come together, figure out some way to take Jesus out. They think he's demon-possessed. He, they're a fear that their jobs are going to be taken away and this really uh, abuse of their position and the use of religion to lord it over the people and this quite a healthy living that they've, you know, put together for themselves as they're just making money hand over fist with the money changers and all. And Jesus has, has you know, cleaned out the temple a couple of times and they're, they don't want him around anymore because they think Rome will come and take them their place away. They're highly motivated to rid themselves of Jesus. And this is what he's explaining to the disciples is about to happen and he's not spiritualizing this. But they somehow cannot get their minds around it because of their paradigm, their framework, their worldview, their prophetic worldview of what was to happen to the nation of Israel. When Messiah would come, he would establish a physical kingdom and he would rule and reign and put down their enemies. They didn't see a second coming. They didn't understand the crucifixion. At least these disciples didn't. There may have been others. Uh, the Essenes may have figured this out uh, if you read some of their material. Uh, but it's interesting that's where they, and this is really why Peter is telling them, look, it's not that bad, Jesus. Hold on, you don't have to die. No, no. You know, yes, he did, and that was why he came. That was his purpose, and he's explaining that to them. You see, the natural man doesn't get it, and he proved him for it. You, you're seeing things as a man, not as God sees it. The natural man, we don't get the things of God. It has to be revealed to us, and that only comes as we humble ourselves before him. 
Notice Paul in his letter to the Corinthians explains this uh, whole principle that we need to understand. So when you're talking to an unbeliever, understand you're speaking to a spiritually blind person. They have no comprehension. We can't speak Christianese to them. We just got to talk normal speech and keep it simple as to what Christ has done. 2 Corinthians 3.14 says, But their minds were blinded. Until this very day, the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament because the veil is taken away in Christ. But even to this day, when Moses is read, the veil lies upon their heart. The point here is that when you are looking for God after the law, if you're a legalistic person and you think you can find God by being obedient and doing everything just right and never sinning, you can find God. No, you can't can't see God that way because your works are not perfect. Nobody's works are perfect. So that veil remains. If you seek to have a performance-based relationship with God, you will not see God. You will not understand God. You will become frustrated and you'll become angry with God. And you'll become resentful. And many people leave the church and leave faith because they can't live up to it. And God never intended you to live up to it to be perfect in your own strength. He expects you to just simply believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Receive the free gift and allow his spirit to empower you and transform you and to make you after his image. That's what it's about. Nevertheless, verse 16 says, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the spirit and where the spirit of the Lord is, there's liberty But we all, with an unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. We need the Holy Spirit to reveal the Lord himself to us. He told them that he was going to suffer many things. He was going to be mistreated and killed. All the teaching, all the truth. As he, you look at Matthew 24, I mean, he laid it out. Wow. He eviscerated those hypocrites. Woe unto you, scribes. Scribes. Hypocrites. You know, just went through that whole list. You whitewashed, you know what I mean? Just blistered them. That was enough to, of a provocation to bring about his death. But he said he would rise again. Sometimes when you hear a message you don't want to hear, you have selective hearing. The disciples had selective hearing, right? I don't want to hear that. Look, you've already promised us 12 thrones, and we don't want to be giving that up, Jesus, so let's not be talking like that now. You know, you whatever. You know how we are. It's just what we do. I didn't hear that. Surely <laughs> didn't mean that spiritualization there. We just were just that way. We wanted to fit our own little, you know, whatever. You know, and then the other thing we're capable of doing and do a lot is like, well, like Mary and Martha, for example, and he's and Jesus is going out to raise their brother from the dead. You guys know the story in John eleven. <laughs> You believe that I am the resurrection and life? Well, I know he's going to rise in the last day. See, we, have no, we seem to have this incredible ability. Well, I know God's going to do it in the future. Like, 
but I can't. But what about right now? What about my bills? What about this and these relationships and this, this present moment? I know I'm saved. Well, that's out there somewhere in the future, right? But, you know, see, I know one day that he's going to raise from the dead. And Jesus said, what about right now? How about we raise him right now? See, it's the now faith. It's the moment faith that we need day by day, moment by moment that matters. So when we hear something that we don't want to hear, you know what we have? We just, hold on. Cognitive dissonance, right? You all know what that is. It's that mental stress that we suffer and discomfort, discomfort we experience when we're trying to hold two or more con- contradictory beliefs. Like, wait, I know we're going to raise it now. Wait, ah! you can't get your mind around it. We all have that with God himself, I think, as you can't get your mind around the Almighty. I mean, it's just too great. It's a normal reaction because we're limited in our capabilities as human beings. So we just have to go with what Jesus said. We just take God at his word. Well, I may not under, I understand what he said, but I may not, I don't know how it's going to work out. That's where faith comes in. I just want and need to trust Jesus. Jesus is a trustworthy person. And lastly, verse 24, excuse me, 23. Then he said to them, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Whoever desires to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. And what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and yet is himself destroyed or lost? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his own glory and in his Father's and in in the, of the holy angels. So, we've identified Jesus. We understand that he suffered death and rose from the dead. And now he's challenging all of us who have heard this message to come after him. Is Jesus worthy to be followed? Is he someone that we should as it were, become one of his disciples? Should we learn of him? If we are and we make that choice, and he is worthy to be, there's a price. There's a cost that has to be paid to show that he is worthy and that we're worthy to be his disciples. So I think the underlying key to discipleship is delayed gratification. Just simply allowing God to, to, for ourselves to pause with the great desires and hopes we have in this life for a good life, to just trust God with that and not be hasty about things. And I think there's three steps in our training for service in the kingdom that are listed here. Jesus did these perfectly, by the way. There isn't anything that he didn't do perfectly. He imaged the Father perfectly. He, he walked as a man perfectly. He was yielded to the Holy Spirit perfectly. I mean, it's really, wow. 
help me, Jesus. You know? <laughs> wow. First one is come after him. Chase after Jesus. Come after him. I know when I got in trouble as a kid, I know what it was to have someone come in after me. <laughs> Woo! I didn't want to be caught. <laughs> That's not what we're talking about, though. <laughs> the idea here is constant fellowship. God wants to have constant fellowship with you. Yes, you. Well, you don't realize what I am. Yes, I do. Because I know who I am. And you've got as much of a fallen nature as I do, so that's not going to work. Constant fellowship is the most important thing. That is making the knowledge of God the most important thing in our life. If you have something that's more important in your life, it's idolatry. That is our quest, to know God. That's what eternity is all about, and we'll never get to the end of this, okay? To know the living God. That's the quest of life, the number one priority of life. And in order for that to really happen means you have to deny yourself. I must deny myself. Give up self-affection. We all love ourselves by nature. And I hate this whole lie. Before you can really love anybody else, you have to first love yourself. Hold on. That's another lie from the world's point of view. You ever notice that almost everything that the world preaches and lays upon it is a flip of what reality really is in the kingdom? What is it? Is it given in the scriptures that all men love themselves? So why do I suffer depression if I, you know, really love myself? Why am I depressed? I can tell you why. Because you have this ideal, I have this ideal that I should be here but the reality is, I'm down here. And the greater that gap is, the more depression I'm going to experience as a person because I know I'm not living up to my own expectations because it's self-idolatry. It's self. What does God say? Yes, this might be the standard, and I know you can't get there, but I have given you my spirit, and by faith, I'm going to transform you gradually. And one day, not in this life, but in the life to come, you're going to be perfected in my presence. That's how it works. And that's, folks, the epitome of delayed gratification. Come after me is the natural worldview is do your own thing. What makes you happy? What makes you fulfilled? You deserve it. Deny yourself. No, the world says live for yourself. Enjoy life. Eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die, right? No, if you want to know God, we have to deny ourselves those personal ambitions, giving our affection to Him rather than self. And then, thirdly, take up your cross. What does that mean? Aren't you glad that you don't have to hang on a cross? That's sort of not the thing in our culture, right? But what's the symbolism behind there is what we have to grasp. The cross was an instrument that brings death. We must die to those selfish interests that we have. Take up our cross. It means submitting to God. Dying to self and just submitting our will for his will. And what does the world say? You just don't submit to anybody. You just do what you want to do. 
And if you don't receive what you get in life, that's on you. Live for yourself. You know, people wear crosses around their neck. Oh, it's love. It's well sacrifice. Yeah. It's pain, it's sorrow to deny the flesh. Selfish interest. What why did they do what they did with and made them bear their own cross? As Jesus made his way, the Via de Rosa, you know, he's making his way up the way of the cross. He's gonna lay his life down for us. They were forced to carry their own cross to publicly show that they were now in submission to the government that they were previously rebelling to. We've brought this criminal in submission. And here we have Jesus, the guiltless. No, no guilt, no sin, yet he's in submission on our behalf. So don't let anybody lay on you that if God was the God of love, then, then no, stop right there, sir. Look what Jesus Christ did for all of mankind right there. He was without sin and he took it all. I refuse to hear those things. That is the epitome of the ignorance of what God has done for us. So the idea of you and I taking up our cross is that we are no longer going to rebel and live after self-will. We're going to give our lives to Jesus. We're going to completely surrender and submit to what he has for us. So the idea of losing our life means that we're going to gain a better life. <laughs> you know, is it possible for one to gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Think of people who've, who've mastered their field and become renowned and world-renowned, and then at the end of it, just like, what was my purpose beyond this? And they go into eternity with empty hands. They have nothing. They put, invested everything that they have in their existence on this and not thinking eternally. It's all sad. You know, I think, well, that's not really a popular message. You should be preaching this day. Oh, yeah, I know. That's going to fly over real well with a lot of people. I don't really, that's not my call. I want to try to be true to the scriptures, and I want to be true to how, what did the New Testament, what did the new converts, the early church, what were they being taught? Acts 14, 21, 23 should clarify that for us. Paul taught the churches this, the churches that he planted in Asia Minor and Macedonia. And when they had preached the gospel to that city and he made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and Iconium and Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples and exhorting them to continue in faith, saying, we must, through many tribulations, enter the kingdom of God. And when he had appointed elders in every church and he prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord and to whom they had believed. So, you're going to be a Christian? Do you think it's going to be a bed of roses? No. It's going to be a rocky road. It's going to try you to your wit's end. But you know what? God gives more grace. His grace is sufficient. And this is Paul's motto as you read through his scriptures that he gloried in tribulation. I think this guy's a mental case. <laughs> what? The idea is, and you will learn this as you walk with the Lord. That when you go through the ringer and you go through these trials and tribulations and you really just break 
through them all because they're, they're, they're crushing trials. They're crushing. Tragedies are crushing. Losses are crushing. And when you humble, when we truly humble ourselves before God, he's there. There's grace. And this is what Paul, Paul found. He got more grace going through this, like things he never dreamed he would experience. And God is so tender and kind. And he renews and strengthens us through it all. We come to know his love and his compassion. To take up your cross means you lose your life and your selfish ambitions to gain a better life. And having done those three things, you just follow him. You don't follow the church. You don't follow the pastor. You don't follow the pope. You don't follow man. You don't let any man take your crown. You follow him because you know him. My sheep hear my voice. They get the idea, we, this is what we need to do. I just know this is what God wants me to do. We know God's will. We have it right here. And we gave a perspective that the world can never take away from us and the world will never understand that if we give up our life now, we gain eternal joy with him. We're not losing our soul. We're gaining everything. We gain an inheritance that is going to blow our minds we're exchanging this eternal, uh, this temporal life for an eternal reward that will never fade away. What a, what a great and awesome privilege it is to know the Lord Jesus Christ. Who do men say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And with a resounding Praise the Lord. You are the Christ. You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. We can proclaim it with joy that he has made himself known to us. We know the Lord God. Isn't that an amazing thing? Shall we stand? Lord, you are such a wonderful God. We love you. We honor you this morning that you in your great mercy and your awesome love have chosen to reveal yourself to even us, the small little ones of the earth, Lord. We're not among the great. We're among the, the commoners, Lord. We're just common, ordinary people that you've chosen to reveal yourself to, and we rejoice forevermore. Thank you for the forgiveness of our sins. Thank you for the mercy that you've shown upon us, Lord. Thank you for the grace that you've expressed in our lives. Thank you for the confidence that you give us to live another day, every day, and that we're not afraid to take up our cross. We're not afraid to deny ourselves. We understand you're a great teacher, Lord, and you're so patient and good to us. Thank you. And so I pray this blessing upon my brothers and sisters this morning, Lord that you will lift up your countenance upon each and every one, that you will shine your face upon each one of us, Lord, and look with that favor, fill our lives with you and your blessings. Put your angels round about us, Lord, and protect us as we go out, Lord. As we come in, glorify your name through our lives. We commit ourselves to you, Lord, now, in Jesus' name. Amen.